Ed and Lorraine Warren, anyone that is anyone that has read or looked into the paranormal ghost hunting world, certainly, surely, has come across this husband and wife team of the Warrens. I would argue if you're listening to this podcast, you've heard of the Warrens. Come on. (laughs) Come on, yeah. They are undoubtedly uh, some, if not the first, of in their field of study, branching off even into some demonology. The couple literally investigated thousands of cases and aided hundreds and hundreds of families and individuals that reached out for help, uh, especially in the 1960s to 1980s, even going into the 90s time frame, tackling some of the best known and famous paranormal investigations of all times, the Amityville Horror, The Conjuring, and of course everyone's beloved little doll, Annabelle. We're going to take a little bit closer, deeper dive into the Warrens. From a child born into this world, we are taught what to believe. Close-minded, we become fearful to be deceived. Still, we desire to know what lies beyond that locked door. The art of the storyteller, conjuring tales of legend and lore. History hidden, lost knowledge, things forgotten, and the unknown. These are the things that direct us and will set the tone. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Nightmares on the Lost Highway. So, Ed and Lorraine Warren were preeminent American paranormal investigators and authors. Absolutely. Uh, They were both born in the 20s. Ed passed in 2006, and Lorraine survived him by quite a while, and she passed not too long ago, 2019. Mm-hmm. But just really, uh, paranormal investigators, authors, very involved in the supernatural in, in many, many ways. Now, Ed, he was a self-taught and self-professed demonologist, author, and, and lecturer. Uh, Lorraine pos- uh, professed to be a clairvoyant with what was called a light trance medium who worked closely with her husband. And they were both devout members and followers of the Catholic Church. Ed uh, claimed to grow up in a haunted house and saw his first apparition at age five, which he said started out as a, a, a an orb, if you will, and then slowly manifested into the their landlord, who, a lady who had passed away a year prior. Oh, he he joined the navy in his late teens, and uh, his ship collided with an oil tanker in the North Atlantic. A fire erupted, and everyone was ordered overboard. And as he floated in the icy waters of the North Atlantic, you know, he, he prayed for help and they were all soon rescued. And he chucked that up a, a sort of a near-death experience for him that sort of pushed him even more into the direction of investigating the paranormal. Understandable. Uh, and he himself would eventually become recognized as the only Catholic lay expert on demonology. The Catholic Church recognized him as a demonologist, and I believe they were even allowed a certain amount of ability to perform exorcism rites by the church. Well, anybody that knows anything about uh, exorcisms in the Catholic Church, that's a huge statement in its own. And then uh, Lorraine, she discovered her abilities as a child. Uh, At age 12, she watched as her classmates were planting a sapling in the the schoolyard, and she watched before her eyes as this sapling grew into a full tree and, and leaves blowing in the wind. And uh, she was asked what she was seeing because, you know, her teacher saw her just staring up, you know, up to where this tree would be. And she said, well, I, I saw this tree grow. And, and, and she's like, you know, they they believe she was witnessing the future. 
Uh, she was more of a skeptic than Ed was typically. And, uh, you know, we, we, you said she was, you know, clairvoyant and all that. Um, and a medium, uh, she underwent testing by the parapsychologist at UCLA in an effort to prove that her abilities were not fake. And they were the ones that labeled her the light medium. Gotcha. So, I mean, as far as she's, con- as far as they're concerned, they tested her abilities and proved her to be. Well, and as we all know, in, in any of these fields, there's going to be skeptics and there's going to be well, yeah. the ones that, you know, the throw the rocks. But I mean, seriously, if you just look at what this couple has accomplished in their lifetime and still accomplishing with, you know, the, the societies and stuff that's, that's taken on their work, well, they were groundbreakers. Yeah. You know, Ed and Lorraine met in their teens in 1944 and got married. Uh, 1945, shortly after Ed's experience in the Navy, he, uh, he was just going to grab life after that, I guess. Right. <laughs> Go home and get married. Not long after 1952, they founded the New England Society for Psychic Research, or NESPR, we'll say NESPR. We NESPR. Can it. it is the oldest ghost hunting group in New England. And according to the Warrens, NESPR used a variety of people to mm-hmm. meet their ends to, on, honestly, they, they wanted to investigate everything. Ed and Lorraine wanted to rule out the logical, the yes. physical. They didn't go into it saying we got ghosts, yeah. or we got demons. They, they wanted assume. to discredit so, as much of that and prove that it was logical explanations. So, so Nesper consulted with people, medical doctors, researchers, police officers, nurses, uh, college students, and, clergy. and the clergy. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. they, they wanted to make sure they ruled out anything that they could. Uh, today, Nesper is run by the Warren's daughter Judy and son-in-law Tony Spera. Um, their website does have a log of some of their more famous cases. I, I did look at their website in doing my research. I, I got to admit, I find it a bit sparse. They do have links. If you, you know, think you need to be investigated, you can, you know, submit your case to them. Right. right. Things like that. Now you mentioned Judy. That was their only daughter. She was born in 1950, right before they founded Nesper. Uh, but yeah, her and her, uh, husband have tried to carry the legacy on. But the the Warrens, they authored a lot of books uh, about the paranormal and about their investigations and claimed to have investigated over 10,000 cases during their career. I think you were going to talk about some of their books. and, and um, Yeah, for their, you know, their, their bibliographies, they've published several books, uh, one of which is The Demonologist. Uh, and that's the, basically the career of Ed and Lorraine. Um, they have Ghost Hunters, True Stories from the World's Most Famous Demonologist, Ed Warren. Uh, Ghost Tracks, uh, that was by Cheryl Wicks. Uh, the Graveyard, True Hauntings from an Old New England Cemetery. The Haunted, A True Story of One Family's Nightmare. Satan's Harvest, uh, A Werewolf, A True Story of Demonic Possession. Um, I was going to talk about him a little bit later. But you, you'll notice these books are all up around the New England area. That's where they were you know, out of and everything. That's kind of their, their hot spot. However, they did travel whenever people would reach out to them asking for help. And, and literally, quite literally, that's, that's what really kind of pulled them into the mainstream is hauntings, possessions, and things that Families would try to ask for help, but they would get scoffed at, made fun of, and then they started coming across the name of the Warrens, and they would reach out to them, and and the Warrens would try to help these people. Now, again, most of this is old history, but obviously some of the most notable cases that Ed and Lorraine were involved in is Annabelle. Yeah. Um, You know, in 1968, uh, it was a 
Two roommates claimed it was actually a Raggedy Ann doll, not not the doll that they have in the movies. Yeah, she doesn't look anything like the movie. Uh, it's <laughs> truly a Raggedy Ann doll if, if those from the 60s and 70s that are listening might know what that Raggedy Ann doll was. But they said it was possessed by a spirit of a young girl. I, I had one growing up I, when I, I was little. I did as well. <laughs> I did as well. And, of course, Amityville. Uh, that's probably their best known involvement. That was in well, 1975. Uh, still wanted to touch on their background here. Uh, they did achieve level some level of pop culture relevance. They appeared on such shows as the Merv Griffin Show, the Tom Snyder Show, which you'd have to be a little bit older than me to don't remember those. that one. Yeah, don't recall. Uh, Merv a, Griffin, I've heard of a haunting and uh, and scariest places on earth. But again, like I said, they would attempt to rule out all logical and physical explanations before they agreed to take a case. They say that they never charged for any of their investigations. I, I read and heard that as well. And and they always saw themselves more as um, educators than anything else. They wanted to teach people. Uh, they actually d- trained quite a few people. Did a lot of in, seminars in the across yeah. the, the nation and stuff. And and their cases, and, and we're, we can talk about those. We kind of touched on that a little bit. But their cases have inspired countless oh. movies. Books, movies, yeah. everything. Yeah, the the notable investigations, and and we can talk about it in in the movies, in, the, in especially the Conjuring universe. Ed Warren is played by Patrick Wilson, who I think is a fine actor, and Lorraine is played by Vera Farmiga. And I'm going to be honest; those two look nothing like Ed and Lorraine Warren. Nothing at all. Uh, if anything, if you've seen the old uh, Poltergeist movie by S- Steven Spielberg, Lorraine was was more like. Well, what's it? Zelda Rubenstein in that movie, you know, kind of a little lady type, a little frail lady. Yeah. Um, Lorraine Warren would appear often on, on TV shows where they would investigate the paranormal. Uh, again, she did claim to have some clairvoyant. Um, wasn't she one of the, well, she appeared several times in the Penn state, uh, ghost hunting series. Yeah. That's that. Yeah. I was thinking about that one. I can't remember the name of it though. I can't either. I can't even remember the name of the lead investigator anymore. I, I used to. Yeah. I think she appeared several times in the series paranormal state. Yeah. Um, that yeah. was like out in 2007. It had like six seasons. They would, uh, they would, Ryan Brule, I yes. think was the lead investigator. On they that. would bring her in as like a paranormal consultant, basically. Uh, he, Ryan and, and Lorraine had a pretty close working relationship as well as another medium chip coffee that, that yeah. visited the show quite often. Now, uh, like we said, they're, they're notable investigations. Uh, they investigated the, the Annabelle story in 1968. Like Eric said, unlike the movie, the doll was actually a Raggedy Ann doll, uh, which they eventually determined was possessed by the spirit of a girl named Annabelle Higgins. Uh, they did take the doll. They put it in display put it on display in their occult museum, which, which was outside of their house. Yeah, I think it was, it was part of their home, supposedly loaded with occult relics and, and haunted relics, you know, possessed items. I and, remember their daughter, Judy on interviews. I mean, can you imagine growing up yeah. with that in your and, house? And those energies, I believe <laughs> kind of bled over into the house. They, they regularly had unexplained phenomenon in their home. And Judy, their daughter had, um, uh, respect fear for that Annabelle doll in particular. Uh, her mom well, had told her, don't even creepy. go, don't even go near that, you know? And yeah, that, that eventually became the 2014, the basis of the 2014 movie Annabelle. And then their spinoff sequels, um, probably one of the first of their investigations to achieve any level of, of notoriety. Amityville. Amityville horror, uh, where New York couple, George and Kathy Lutz claimed their house was haunted by a violent presence, which eventually drove them out of their house. I think after George attempted to murder the family or, or, or I mean that that's according to the story. Right. Right. 
Now, of course, there was a lot of controversy surrounding Amityville, and a lot of people say that the Warrens really played up what happened there. And and but like, the people that live there say that these events actually happened. You'll always have those skeptics, but yeah, that uh, spawned the basis for the 1977 book, and and then of course, well, the Conjuring, the, yeah, the 1979 and 2005 Amityville horror movies. Yep, and then that 79 film had who knows how many sequels. Oh yeah. Um, and I'm I'm assuming they they get pretty far from the the original story because I remember one of them had like a well in the basement which was a portal to hell. So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, let's face it, in Hollywood, especially, you got to dial it up a little bit to get those ratings and sell those tickets. In in 1977, they investigated the infield poltergeist, which was in a North London suburb. Again, there's proof they've you know they've left America. Yeah. They're really branching out. And this is supposedly one of the most active, most well documented uh, poltergeists cases and demonic possession I mean. but uh and again some claim the warrens showed up uninvited they were refused admittance you know what they knew about the story was kind of punched up and uh, again that became the the basis for the movie the conjuring 2 mm-hmm. from 2016 you have cheyenne johnson 1981 uh cheyenne johnson was accused of killing his landlord uh, the Warrens had been called in prior to this killing to deal with what they what, with what was alleged demonic possession of the younger brother of Johnson's fiance. While they were there investigating that possession claim, they also claimed that Johnson himself was possessed. Johnson, of course, went to court and pled not guilty using probably by demonic possession. Yeah, not guilty by reason of demonic possession, yeah. which is the best offense you could ever have. I mean, obviously, never been done before. Um, uh, he was unsuccessful. Uh, yeah, the judge shut that down quick. And that is the inspiration for the upcoming uh, The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It, which is supposed to come out in 2021. And, you know, honestly, there was some talk I read about that particular, the judge, you know, he like, literally, he was like, I'm not having any part of this. <laughs> yeah, this, 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 just, I'm going to throw this out of my courtroom. Had he opened that, Wow. Had he opened I, that door? I'm not sure. That that's Pandora's box. Yeah. I mean, not saying demonic possessions aren't real, but oh my gosh, that would lay the foundation to all kinds of frivolous, could be lawsuits and stuff. Then uh, 1986, you have the Snedeker House. I believe that's how you pronounce it. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, it looks close. Uh, the Warrens arrived and declared that this former funeral home was infested with demons. Uh, the family lived there that was involved with a lot of serious problems, alcoholism and drug addiction. So that kind of drew some skepticism from people from the outside. Obviously, these are horrible things to have to deal with. But um, I remember channel surfing. It was on the Discovery Channel, uh, that series in 2002 that was based upon that. And I was yeah. sucked into that story immediately. Yeah. Well, and, and the the families involved had a hard time keeping their story straight. So there's a lot of doubt on that case. And yeah, that became the basis for the movie The Haunting in Connecticut in 2009. Mm-hmm. Kind of loosely based on that story. Uh, another one of their more well-known stories was the Smurl family investigation, 1986. This was a Pennsylvania family that reported their home was disturbed by numerous phenomena, sounds and smells and apparitions. The Warrens arrived. They did their investigation. They claimed the house was occupied by four spirits and a demon, uh, which they called a succubus, that sexually assaulted Jack and Janet. Yes. Now, an interesting part about this case is Cardinal Ratzinger, he assigned an exorcist from the church to help the Warrens with this case. And the reason that's interesting is because Cardinal Ratzinger would eventually become Pope Benedict XVI. Yeah, they were literally so dealing with were, the future Pope. Yeah, they were aided by the Pope. And that became the basis for the movie The Haunted in 1991. 
And then you have, you have Union Cemetery, which is another one of the of their more widely known cases. It was reportedly Haunted Cemetery, one of the most haunted cemeteries in the United States, by all accounts. Up in Connecticut. And and there was one of their books was specifically dedicated to it, where they describe uh, the white lady that haunts that cemetery, described as wearing a white diaphanous nightgown or wedding dress. And Ed himself claimed to have seen the ghost and recorded video of it. And then uh, the one I kind of wanted to talk about that kind of got my attention while I was reading it, and this is one that wasn't made into a movie and should have been, and let's be honest, this will probably be The Conjuring 22 or whatever, <laughs> was the story of Bill Ramsey, the Southland werewolf. Now, Ramsey was a working class British man in the 1980s when, by all accounts, he suddenly started turning into a wolf at random and biting people, friends, neighbors, nurses, Wow. The postman, I would assume, maybe. Chase the postman. <laughs> now, the Warrens were in England. Uh, this may have been around the same time as Enfield, possibly. I'm not sure. But uh, they were in England, and they saw a broadcast of this young man on TV. And they decided that they needed to be involved. Right. Uh, you know, they, they want to know what was going to go on. So they convinced him. They went and met with him and convinced him to come back to Connecticut with them. Uh, there... They conducted an exorcism on him with the help of uh, Bishop Robert McKenna. And they said it was a, a demon possession that made him act like this. The, he wasn't like, he wasn't quote, quote, unquote, a werewolf, werewolf, right? But that he was overwhelmed, possessed by a demon that forced him to act out in this wolf-like manner. Uh, the exorcism was apparently a success because uh, Ramsey doesn't seem to have attacked anyone since 1992. Hmm. So, you know. They must have done something, right? Right. So. A little bit less known facts. You know, a lot of people have known a lot about the Warrens and some of the stuff we've talked about. There was a possible underage love affair that kind of came out, and that came out really right about the time as the first Conjuring film. Yeah, I, I stumbled upon that. This is kind of a little bit darker side. Uh, there was a Judith Penny, and she stated in 2017 uh, that uh, when she was about 15, maybe 16 years of age, that she had an underage love affair with Ed. Uh, now, this led into the 1960s, but Lorraine had knowledge of it. Judith was a young girl who aided the demonologist paranormal investigators for a total of four decades. She stayed with the uh, Warrens, uh, actually to a point where they, at first when they brought her in, she was kind of from a, a broken family scenario, didn't have a lot going for her, so... Uh, when the, everything started out, Ed, you know, financially, they just weren't there. He was still driving a school bus. And uh, she was actually one of his school bus uh, attendees, uh, riders. And that's how they had met. Uh, she was going to school. And as they started getting into this, they, they had so much stuff to try to document. They were all about trying to document. And that's what they shared with a lot of these seminars and stuff. And so she was kind of brought under their wing. Uh, given a place to stay, they felt uh, a safe haven was actually said. And she did a lot of this uh, typing and, you know, all this recording stuff for him. Now, she stated that uh, she actually did get pregnant with Ed's child uh, and ended up getting an abortion in 1973. She uh, claimed in a sworn document many years later that Ed was abusive uh, to Lorraine often backhanding her across the face, even to the point of striking her so hard that Lorraine went unconscious. Wow. She came out with all this. Again, I'm not sure how I feel about this, but this came out about the time of the movie The Conjuring. Well, fame always brings with it a level of scrutiny and, and whether the stories are accurate or not. You know, 
the, every, every famous person you've ever heard of. There might be a little something to it. Yeah. Um, now, according to Judas' family, because at this point, now Judith is 70-some years old when this the movie The Conjuring is coming out, but the family seemed to kind of push her in that, hey, and this is this is just one take, but, you know, hey, the, this couple's got this movie coming out. There might be some money here. Let's let's work this. Let's get <laughs> your story told. You know, let, not let them have all the limelight. They said they were a little upset that Ed and Lorraine were portrayed as such a, a well-balanced married couple. And, you know, that's not the real story. The real story needs to be told. Well, here well let's be thing. honest. If you're watching The Conjuring and, and Ed backhands Lorraine off screen... <laughs> That's not the movie you want to watch. That's yeah. not the movie you people yeah. want to put out there. Yeah, that's, yes, we're going to change ratings and stuff. The movie <laughs> is going to portray Ed and Lorraine as being this perfectly balanced, we're here to help. And again, I mean, when we were talking about some of their most notable investigations, a lot of those did have controversy around them. Absolutely. Did Ed and Lorraine tell the truth? Did they punch up the story? Amityville is one that is continuously argued as you have a guy who was sick and tried to kill his family. Versus the the Warrens account, which, if if memory serves, even the Warrens have gone back and forth. At one point, at, at one point, saying it was clearly an episode of possession, and then later on saying, "Well, maybe it wasn't." Right. So maybe we were caught up in the moment a little bit, yeah. or, or whatever. So, and I mean, come on, let's face this: if if this is true, we'll, we'll jump to the other side of the fence. You've got Ed and Lorraine, a young couple who is going in to tackle stuff that the churches don't want to touch. Yeah. Uh, they're, if they are truly dealing with demons and stuff, you know, things aren't going to be smooth. Yeah. I can't imagine how they could be. You would have to assume that they have a, a, a rough life dealing with these things. Oh my gosh. Um, there's a book that I have read. They, they made it into a movie. I can't remember the name of the book, but it was a New York City police officer who eventually became involved in doing investigations. I think he himself worked with the Warrens at one point or another. You know, when you read the book... He talks about these horrific, chilling exorcisms and things that he was involved in, these in cases he was involved in. But then the in-between segments are, you know, this is me at home and like how, you know, on one occasion he did bring something home and for weeks right. his wife was terrified of what was going on. So if you use that same logic, the things the Warrens were being involved in, I mean, if if Ed lashed out, and I'm not going to defend him hitting a woman in any way, shape, or form. Right, right. But you could see how they might say the things they were involved in. Maybe well, Ed wasn't in control. And and maybe, again, I'm not making excuses to ever hit a woman, but again, if you've got possession, possibly Lorraine was getting overwhelmed. What do you, you grab somebody, you shake them, yeah, you might you smack, smack them, them to try to bring them back out. Yeah, you know. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not saying one way it's or the other. It's not a reason. We weren't there. Yeah, we weren't there. Uh, but this little kind of lawsuit frenzy started when the first movie, The Conjuring, came out. Didn't get a lot of attention, to be quite honest. So then it was like the family dialed it up a little bit and uh, Judith's story, she she went on and she said, well, you know, I, I literally, my bedroom when I stayed at the house was right across the bedroom from from them to a point where she stayed four decades, 40 years, this lady worked with them, that a uh, studio apartment was built above, uh, I believe the garage eventually for her. And uh, Judith was claiming that Ed would spend one night upstairs in the garage and one night downstairs with Lorraine. You know, it got very nasty. Um, then they went in and saying that they were not giving Judith the credit that she deserved because she stuck around with the family and for 40 years documented the cases. There was another story that came out that Ed and Lorraine pulled Judith off the side and said, look, you know, you're pregnant. We can't handle this. Our business won't handle this. 
So we, we've made up this story. We want you to buy into it that someone broke into your apartment and raped you. And Judith made a stand and said, I'm not going to, I'm not going to lie about it. Lorraine later supposedly went to her and said, look, you know, we're trying to help you. You're staying here with us. Surely you can see how this would be bad. So that's when the abortion came play. Well, and you can almost see that from from a business perspective. They're trying what they do. Obviously, you know you've got a you've got a niche market there. So. Yeah, yeah. So I, again, I, this podcast is not about that, but it was an interesting tidbit that that's kind of a little less known. Yeah, I, I would say that if not for the Conjuring, you know. In recent times, a lot of people probably wouldn't know who Ed and Lorraine were. Yeah, I mean, the old films, the Amityville and stuff, but those kind of fade away to accept that little niche group. But yeah, The Conjuring, my, my gosh, that's one of the biggest blockbuster yeah. film franchises uh, in the in the new age, you might say. Yeah, and I mean, they're, they're creepy movies for sure. Yeah. I remember going to the theater to see the first one. And I was sort of delightfully surprised. I didn't realize it was going to be about the Warrens. I didn't when either. I went and saw it. They didn't really advertise no, it. No, they about don't advertise that. it that way. So when they introduce them as Ed and Lorraine, you're immediately, oh, this is Ed. And, and I believe it starts with, like, the Conjuring movie even kind of starts with them doing the Annabelle story and then moves yeah, on. They're kind of the, linked together enough that if you know what you're looking yeah, for, you're like, this is kind of the continuation. For. Yeah, one of them sort of the touches. Prelude and one of them sort of touches on Amityville a little bit before going to a different story. But yeah, it was really interesting to see that these were sort of the stories of Ed and Lorraine, which again, you know, when you when you talk about some of their most significant investigations, they've all been turned into films. Uh, like I said, that, that one about the Southland werewolf, I'm sure it'll be a movie eventually. So, I, And honestly, I'm glad. I mean, as you said, Ed passed away many years ago, but at least Lorraine was actually on the set of, of the, at least the first Conjuring film. Um, I saw pictures of her and with the actors and stuff. And she very much had that like old fashioned, like, like 50s, 60s old woman vibe. little flower dress. Yeah. 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 And her hair done up. She looks like it would be your grandma or something. I mean, absolutely. So I'm, I'm, I am glad that she was around to at least see that to me. I would think that would be kind of, uh, you know, Hey, at least we're getting acknowledgement. And if you truly believe what they tried to do is to try to help people didn't take any money for these cases, that would have to be a, a, a good, a landmark, if you will, in your life. Well, if they, if, a- yeah, if they didn't take money that, that at least proves that they were trying to do. I mean, I would think that shows that they're doing the right thing. They're trying to do the right thing. Yeah. They're conducting these investigations. They're they're just trying to help people, and yeah. like that, like I said, they saw themselves more as educators. They wanted to teach people about the supernatural. I know Ed taught people about demonology and stuff like that. Like I said, the the, the police officer in the book I read, I know he was familiar with the Warrens. I don't know how closely he worked with them, but they but, inspired so many people yeah. to to pick up, you know, and and to roll with this. And again, like I said, if you're listening to this podcast, you you're, you've probably at least heard of the Warrens. And if you haven't, I mean, going through the cases, you've heard of Annabelle or the Conjuring movies or the Amityville horror, their their legacy just goes but way I've, back. I've got one story that you may not have heard of. If, if you don't oh, have anything else, most I, likely, I, I this might is dive a story that, that you shared with me. Probably three years ago. <laughs> At least two years and, ago. And this before we ever even talked about a podcast, <laughs> you shared this with me. And I, I love this anecdote, and I'm glad that we remembered it for the podcast. But Absolutely. yes, we've got to share this. This this ties so many threads together. We're going to dub this this one time when Lorraine Warren talked to Bigfoot. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, this is actually in one of their books, uh, in their book, Ghost Hunters. It was published in 1989. Ed and Lorraine Warren reaccount some of their more terrifying but unusual cases, we should say, uh, not traditional to their demonologist ghost hunting. Um, in fact, in that book, you can uh, hear about uh, disappearing Nigerian priests, porno theater demons, <laughs> possessed biker gangs, and my favorite, absolutely, hands down, when Lorraine Warren communed with none other than the biggest star, <laughs> Bigfoot. This whole book, that little story of the Bigfoot is literally covered in eight pages. It's nothing more than a blurb, but oh my gosh. I'm like, why haven't I heard of this? Well, it, it's, it's, it's your, it's, it's chocolate and peanut butter. It's two great oh tastes. Oh my gosh. It's like, why <laughs> haven't these things come together in my life before? And obviously it left my jaw dropping and, and I have to say inquiring <laughs> minds want to know. So without further ado, I'll get into the little blurb there. Lorraine quotes in the book, uh, we had never paid much attention to the stories about Bigfoot. I wouldn't say that we dismissed them as fictitious, but Bigfoot didn't hold much interest for psychic investigators. That changed one spring when we were lecturing in Tennessee and a reporter from the Elk Valley Times contacted us and said we have, and I quote, some hill people who kept insisting that something was threatening their children. <laughs> hill people. I love that. Hey, I, I, I like I said, I got family in Tennessee. <laughs> there are still hill people in Tennessee. On a foggy morning, just before embarking on what would be a four-day lecture tour, Ed and Lorraine headed to rural Tennessee, and they would meet up with a group, um, what was noted as the Frightened Hill People. Seeking help uh, was a very strange problem, something dwelling in their local forest, and it was after their children. As a matter of fact, just a day or two before the Warrens arrived, the local, there was a local mother that claimed her two-year-old child was nearly snatched by an ape-like hairy man creature who grabbed the child, I believe, by a leg, like at a picnic event or something, and tried to drag the child into the woods. <laughs> I mean, this is startling stuff. Lorraine stated that she didn't exactly believe the stories, but having never seen poverty this raw, now I'm assuming this is where she's mentioning the hill people. Now my my in-laws lived in the area. My my father-in-law passed away not that long ago. Uh, they're very involved in their church, and and they told stories of going up into the mountains, into these backwood haulers, if you will, mm -hmm. and of families that, that still had houses dirt floors and, yes. and stuff. So, yeah. I mean, yeah. That's, that's what I'm envisioning yeah. because of that statement that she says, never seen poverty this raw. Uh, and again, they're trying to reach out. They're trying to help people. And obviously, if that is the scenario that this uh, society is in, who are they going to go to? Yeah. I mean, you know, while on the visit, she found herself following a group through some steep trails, deep in the woods, climbing tall hills, descending into deep valleys. Definitely not the type of investigation the Warrens are used oh, to. Yeah, yeah. And again, Lorraine, kind of a frail woman. Hours later, she found herself just totally exhausted of hiking. Uh, she was frustrated and felt like it was a waste of time out of their busy schedule. Uh, so she took a break and was sitting uh, near a tree. Suddenly, her mind flashed with a mental image of a large creature. She describes it, quote-unquote, a fusion of man and ape. It had long arms and shaggy hair. Now, this is very similar to when they planted the tree, that sapling yeah. that you were talking about. And she starts linking with this. She said it was similar to a caveman. However, she was most intrigued by its eyes. They were very dark and deep and shown intelligence and also pain. 
So again, she's trying to reach out not only to help the people. Now she almost feels pity for for the Bigfoot. This this thing's hurting. As she focused on the bean, she realized the creature was just 40 feet away from her, hiding in a thick brush, and he was in pain. Lorraine knew this because the Bigfoot was telepathically communicating with her. He was hurt, as the chapter reads. His hairy, splayed foot scabbed with still seeping blood. She's envisioning this, seeing this. During his travels that day, uh, he, the Bigfoot, had somehow injured his foot. Afraid that the injury would keep him from returning to his secret cave, the creature now projected great fear. The Bigfoot missed his family and was fearing death or capture by the humans asking or, or seeking him. He felt trapped and isolated and he was scared for his life. This is a side of Bigfoot that you just don't yeah. care about. I mean, yeah. let's let's face it. Now, Lorraine began to return the creature's uh, telepathic messages, explaining that he had terrified the settlement by attempting to kidnap one of their children. But the Bigfoot shook his head and claimed he meant only to make friends with the child. Youngsters don't have prejudices as the adults, he, he tried to explain. So he felt he could perhaps explain himself to the child just as he was explaining himself to Lorraine. So, eager to help, Lorraine began to shake with anxiety as uh, she hushed her hiking group, uh, required total concentration for her communication with the Bigfoot, and she immediately said she felt a maternal love for. As they crept further up into the brush, projecting images of her bandaging Sasquatch's foot, this is what she's projecting to him, trying to calm him, keeping him from fleeing off, A member of the hiking group had honked a horn as a joke and startled Lorraine, breaking her concentration and also frightening the Bigfoot. Um, The mental image became frantic. The searing pain in the Bigfoot's foot as he tried to run away was too much to bear. That link was, was lost. He was running as fast as he could, limping up a hill, shaking with fear and exhaustion. Then the projections just, you know, totally disappeared. Lorraine spent the next 20 minutes following a trail of blood, uh, getting redder and redder and more viscacious of human blood, to the edge of a cliff where apparently she saw where the Bigfoot had fallen or leapt off the cliff to commit suicide or maybe, accidentally maybe fell. felt that he was cornered and had no other option. And so the case file ends uh, with an apparent Sasquatch suicide, accidental death. Um, it's a sad finale to what is quite possibly, I think, the weirdest Warren investigation. Yeah, we're probably not going to get a movie of that one. Not going to see a movie of that, but I mean, wow, uh, you know. But she uh, definitely felt that link, and she felt she, she, she wanted to actually try to get the Bigfoot and the child close enough together that she could commune with them to explain what was really going on. Yeah. I mean— if that's not a dedication to try to help people who don't or, or creatures who don't have a source, I don't, I don't know what is. So, um, yeah, that was uh, the one time when Lorraine Warren talked to Bigfoot. I love that story. I do too. I love that. <laughs> I, I, you know, well, uh, we're going to leave you on that twisted tale. Uh, but again, we hope that you very much enjoyed listening into our podcast and we hope that you'll check out some of our other editions. We are now up to well over 30 episodes. And the, we, this episode will actually be number 35. 35. So we're hoping at least you can find something of interest. And um, next week's episode would actually be just about our one-year anniversary from Ooh. the first time we released an episode. Approaching our one-year anniversary. We so. may do something special for that. 
But please share this, and we hope that you enjoy yet another tale that we share with you on Nightmares on the Lost Highway. Thanks for listening. Hey, this is Eric, and I just wanted to give a little reach out and a plug to our first paying sponsor for Nightmares on the Lost Highway. That's our little family uh, toy and gaming shop here in Lebanon, Missouri, called Raven's Loft. If you happen to be in the central Missouri area, please check us out. We have two locations. First one is at 223 West Commercial, downtown Lebanon. We've also branched out to a second location out at the Heartland Antique Mall, also here in Lebanon. You're going to find all kinds of vintage toys, Star Wars, Star Trek, G.I. Joe, Transformers, Mego, Universal Monsters, all types of gaming, board games, Magic the Gathering. So we would appreciate it if you'd uh, stop by. You can like our Facebook page. Uh, swing by and check us out. Thank you so much. I would like to thank uh, Alex Tudor, who has been helping us uh, a lot uh, with our endeavors on this podcast. You can call him our producer at this point, I think. Our producer, electronic recording technician. uh, um, He's uh, the one that's setting up all the mics and the hardware in the background. And then Bill Weirs is going through taking his time to try to clean and edit this up and uh, give us the best possible version that we can present to you folks. want to thank everybody involved with that.